Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Energy News Beat podcast. With my name is Stu Turley, President and CEO of the Sandstone Group. I've got an absolute huge treat today. I've got an old friend, and I mean Sean Strawbridge is a energy hero. I met Sean when he was uh, the CEO of the uh, Port of Corpus Christi. He has turned that bad dog and had a great team there as a manager. It is now up there in, I think, two or three in the world as a port. It's energy security. But now uh, Sean is off on a new uh, adventure and he's got a worldwide impact with this new one. His company is Voyager Energy Partners and he is a co-founder partner there. And I can't wait to talk about global energy security, talking about how this new endeavor could impact the world. Sean, thank you so much for stopping by. I hope I got that right. Hey, Stuart, thanks for the kind words and great to see you again. Uh, I Okay, so we're off and running. We were chit-chatting, Sean, right before the show. And tell us a little bit about your new gig, because everybody knows, uh, if they know Sean Strawbridge, they know the Port of Corpus and everything that you did there. It, you made a huge advantage for the United States in energy security. But tell us about Voyager. Well, Stuart, thanks for having me. It's great to see you again. And thank you for those kind words. Uh, my time at the Port of Corpus Christi was certainly one of the privileges of my career. And the port is now the third largest energy gateway in the world uh, behind only wow. Saudi Arabia and Russia. So to have uh, been a part of that epic growth uh, was certainly gratifying for me. But, you know, eight years was a was a, a, a nice run. And I felt that there was still some opportunity in the market for me to perhaps uh, try my hand in scratching my entrepreneurial itch. And so we I and some some bright minds in the industry have started a new venture called Voyager Energy Partners. And it is really focused on what I'm going to call water-to-water provisioning of American molecules, American energy molecules to our allies and our trading partners. You know, when you think about energy production in the United States, we have the large producers, the majors, of course, we have some independents. We have the midstream companies that transport those molecules from the well to the water. But then once they get to the water, they usually are in foreign ownership at that time and foreign control. And most of the large energy commodities trading houses are not American companies. And a lot of there's a lot of reasons for that, including the tax climate that we have here in the United States. But I think with the dislocation that's been created in the market as a result of the geopolitical environment that we find ourselves in, we believe that it is an opportunity for an American company to source American molecules and ensure that those molecules are getting into the right hands. That is our allies and our partners in folks in areas like the Asia Pacific region. And we're talking countries, of course, our, our right. traditional allies like Japan and Korea. But we've got some new developing allies like Vietnam and others wow. that are in the neighborhood, if you will, of China and have become that much more important of trading partners for the United States. Uh, we obviously have seen the dislocation that's been created in Europe with Mr. Putin's expansionist appetite right. and his invasion of Ukraine. 
Uh, Europe has never been more dependent on American energy uh, in a post-World War II era. So that right. too creates opportunities. So we think the Voyager Energy Partners can really tap in to that need and ensure in working with our federal partners, working nice. with elected officials to ensure that we do have good, solid public policy that is promoting the export, the production and the export of American oil and American gas in a clean, safe manner to our allies and our partners. And that's what uh, our thesis is behind Voyager Energy Partners. I'll tell you what, that is really cool, because in my uh, opinion, we are now entering in a stage, Sean, that the United States oil and gas is more important now than it ever has been in, in our previous time because nothing in the strategic oil reserves, thanks to some administrative policies, our export dollars, LNG export becoming so important. But your customers, who are you going after around the world in order to help uh, facilitate this. You're going to have your, I, I'm assuming, the chenires of the world or those that are working, but who are your uh, clients? Well, chenir would actually, we would view them as either a service provider in providing the liquefaction of nice. the natural gas uh, in creating liquefied natural gas. Uh, we would actually have chartered a charter group. So we will be in control of the vessels that will nice. load the LNG or the LPG or the crude oil, whether that's through charter or whether that's through acquisition of those vessels from the shipyards. Uh, and, and our nice. customers will be these large foreign owned oil and gas companies, large utilities. And in right. many cases, they're actually the national oil or companies or the national utilities, many, many countries around the world, those critical infrastructure companies, those, those, right. those energy companies, they're nationalized. They have not been privatized. They're still part of the sovereign governments of right. those, those countries. And so those two would be our allies. And I think it's important that there is accountability that we know when we're negotiating trade agreements, that energy is top of mind when we're negotiating trade agreements and that we're being held that those countries that have entered into those trade agreements with the United States are being held accountable. And we would be one of those checks and balances that would be able to report back to the federal government in, in a meaningful way, the right. accountability that's needed and necessary for these trade agreements. As we look at the global market, because the global market for LNG and our molecules, and I love the way you phrase that, the molecules from the oil and, uh, American oil and gas, it is a complicated uh, mix uh, as we take a look at that. This is not a lightweight job. This is not a lightweight company in order to get that done. Uh, what about, I mean, Ch I believe China uh, and Qatar just signed a 27-year contract this is long-term business. This is not something that you just, you know, put in place. Are you also looking at the short-term and long-term contracts? Yeah, it's a great question. So we, we certainly, our ambition is to participate with long-term offtake agreements with these okay. customers. Uh, energy security is needed and necessary for any sovereignty to have a viable economy as well right. as its national security. What we saw, though, during the pandemic is a lot of the long-term contracts were declared of force majeure. And there was very few sovereignties oh. that kept intact their long-term contracts. A lot of folks went to the spot markets. And remember the crude market, right. the crude spot market in 
2020 went into negative territory for the first time ever. Well, now what's happened is uh, sovereignties like Japan and China, they really maintained and even increased their long-term offtake agreements, which left a real uh, kind of musical chairs, if you will, left a lot of the smaller sovereignties having to participate in the spot markets. Uh, And the spot markets have a higher volatility and certainly a higher degree of risk. Our goal long-term is to have long-term offtake agreements with these companies and to be able to provision them with long-term vessel chartering so they have that security and that surety that they will get the energy. Now, of course, there will be a a portion of the market that will participate in the spot market, and and we certainly hope to participate in that as well. And to your point, this is absolutely big ball. This is this is major right. leagues, and we're certainly sober and and eyes wide open about uh, us being right. really a David in a Goliath market. Right. But we do think that today is there's never been a better time in a post World War II era for American companies to really lead the charge when it comes to energy provisioning on the export markets to our allies and our partners. Uh, Sean, I love the way you articulate that because it is important. Let me let me ask this geopolitical issue because remember uh, when Trump told Germany that if they don't fix their natural gas, they're going to be beholden to uh, Russia. All of the EU went to spot. They got rid of their long-term contracts, and that started a war. I mean, countries go to war over energy. Uh, with these long-term contracts, I think if I understood your your company, I think that being nimble and being the David makes more sense right now because you're going to be able to go change those quickly on on all those LNGs and 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 those kind of things with the right contacts, Sean. I think you're going to hit it out of the park. Does that make sense? Well, uh, we we certainly hope so. And and I I remember vividly the exchange that President Trump had with the German delegation. And frankly, the German delegation at that time was rather dismissive of President Trump's message. And I fear that was more in the delivery and the profile of the messenger than it was the actual actual message, uh, which uh, many, many folks make that mistake. Uh, That's funny. It, we we clearly saw with uh, Putin's invasion of uh, Russia and with the Nord Stream pipeline uh, disruption, we saw that that Germany uh, certainly was caught uh, somewhat flat-footed, as was other Western European countries. Right. And today, the United States is exporting fourteen, arguably fourteen BCF a day, uh, and growing. Uh, we've got right. more liquefaction uh, facilities that are under construction right now than those that are actually in operation. So we believe that that wow. number could double uh, between now and 2030, somewhere around 27 to 30 BCF a day of exports of LNG to our allies. So it's certainly a growth market and one that is seeing significant capital investment, both direct, uh, both uh, uh, American investment and, and certainly right. foreign direct investment. You mentioned uh, Qatar. Uh, the Qataris, along with Exxon, are, are building the Golden Pass facility there uh, yep. in the uh, Sabine Natchez waterway. Uh, so even the Qataris, given what's going on in the Middle East, are looking to hedge their bets with their right. LNG franchise in in 
you know, in what's arguably a, a neighborhood that has certainly some disruptions going on right now and some unrest. Uh, right. I think at the end of the day, it's really about diversification. And like any portfolio, it, right. you should have a p- diversified portfolio. And that's why we believe that there is a role for American oil and American gas in energy in any uh, sovereignty right. energy portfolio. And, and, that, and that's really what we're looking to tap into at, at Voyager Energy Partners. That is so cool. Do you see the Asia market really kicking in so hugely? Because like you mentioned, Japan is now all in on their nuclear and they are really ramping up things. So a huge market for you. I'm seeing that the uh, LNG market in Asia is growing like you wouldn't believe. So I could be wrong. But uh, do you see that as a huge opportunity for you? We certainly do, Stuart. Uh, You know, Japan's been importing LNG for 50, 60, 70 or more years. Uh, So they're very familiar with that, with, with that energy source. Uh, And as they move away from coal fired power utilities, uh, liquefied natural gas is certainly with a less than 50% carbon footprint of coal. It certainly fits into their portfolio as they continue to evolve into other energy sources, whether that's renewables, whether that's hydrogen, uh, which we certainly have uh, a keen eye on hydrogen and hydrogen production and vessels are going to be needed and necessary to move oh, whatever yeah. derivative of hydrogen. So if you're moving vessels today with LNG, you can also move those same vessels with with other hydrogen derivatives as well. So, you know, these vessels are are they're, they're expensive. They're very uh, uh, right. capital intensive. You can use them for 20 plus years. Uh, so they do have a, a fairly long life. Uh, and, and, and unfortunately, we don't have them of any size built in the United States. They have to be sourced outside of the United States. And, and that's an area that I am hopeful that at some point the federal government and, and members of Congress will recognize that we've got to rebuild our merchant marine, our U.S. flag merchant mariner, mariner constituency, uh, because right. it is a vulnerability that will exist if we are in any major conflict. Uh, right. But today, uh, just the, the, the market ec- economics are such that uh, it's not economically viable to use a U.S. built U.S. flag tanker in a foreign market. So right. at the end of the day, we've got to look at uh, still being competitive. Uh, because uh, folks are still going to be price sensitive. Uh, but we're going to keep a keen eye on that. And we're certainly going to be advocates for good public policy that support a growing U.S. merchant fleet. I'll tell you, Sean, you just woke up a gigantic squirrel and it is a ugly baby giant squirrel with the Jones Act. And then you also have we have, I believe it's either four or five shipyards and two of them are military, I believe. And we have no capacity to build them. I, I I mean, China just this week announced uh, they're starting their build on their first actual cargo carrier doing LNG as a fuel. And I see that as a huge plus for boom for exports for uh, the U.S. market because of the uh, ecological uh, rules that went into effect for getting rid of uh, tankers and cargo ships and everything else. There's nothing but great things on the horizon for LNG. And I just see the market continuing to grow for many, many years. Does that certainly, make sense? I mean, it, it, it does. And, and it's certainly in sur- surface transportation, the International Maritime Organization, which is the, the, the standards organization that establishes these types of 
of fuel standards that, that are adopted by 150 countries around the world. Uh, we had IMO 2020 that went into effect pretty successfully, uh, right. which requires these vessels to switch from their heavy fuel oils. Uh, we call it bunker in our yep. in our industry uh, to switch from bunker fuels or a heavy fuel oil to a low sulfur diesel within a certain nautical miles uh, uh, sovereign's territory. And that ultra low sulfur diesel, half a percent sulfur, the, the big question was, is it going to be the chicken or the egg? Is there going to be enough of that feedstock to be able to have these carriers switch over? Uh, and I commend the refining sector for meeting those requirements. We now have new set of standards for 2030 and LNG seems to be percolating to the top. Uh, when it comes to using that as a feedstock for powering these large vessels. So there is going to be an increased prominence. The key is going to be, it's like anything you think about Tesla and the charging stations for a Tesla right. uh, to network, a, a charging network for, for right. Teslas or any EVs for that matter. Uh, you're going to have to have that same network of fueling capabilities throughout the world. And we right. just don't have that today. So the prominence of LNG to be able to provision those fueling centers for these vessels as they convert, again, from heavy fuel oil, which has a much higher carbon right. content to LNG, which is less than half, less than oh, half the CO2 yes. emissions. Uh, you know, we, we talk about LNG, LNG has been unfairly vilified in, in certain circles. But when you look at, for example, here in the United States, we have reduced uh, carbon emissions in the public utility space by over 50% in the last 15 years. And that wasn't through regulation, as you know, Stuart, that was through innovation and extraction technologies with the hydraulic fracturing and the abundance of natural gas over 200 years of proven reserves now in the United States. Uh, and now we have sub $3 Henry Hub that makes natural gas much more competitive than coal at a much lower carbon footprint. So, you know, if, if I somebody was to offer me the trade, hey, if you can reduce carbon, atmospheric carbon emissions by 50 percent uh, over the next 10 years uh, and still use a hydrocarbon, would you do that? You know, the answer is, of course, I'll take that trade all day long. Oh, absolutely. It's the Hungdong uh, Zoot. I, boy, I, my Oklahoma, Texas accent would butcher this name horribly. Hongdong Zuga is the construction series of the 23,000 TEU LNG dual fuel container ship for French shipping giant CMA uh, CGM. That thing is huge. And wow. Um, and, and just to give your just to give your your, your audience uh, uh, some context of how big that ship is. You know, when I started in the industry in 1990, the largest container ships on the planet were 4,400 TEU. Now wow. they're, as you say, 23,000, 24,000, even 25,000 TEU. That's enough to fill four major shopping malls, wall to wall, eight feet high with goods. It's longer than the Empire State Building is tall. And if you're familiar with the I-95 in South Florida or the 405 yeah. in, in Southern California, those ships are wider than those 12-lane highways. That's how big these vessels are. So vessel technology has evolved much more rapidly than infrastructure wow. has been able to keep pace. And, and that's really what we're focused on is now ensuring that the infrastructure right. is in place to be able to handle these larger classification of vessels that are now having these dual fuel capabilities. 
That is nuts. That's huge. I thought it was big, but I didn't realize it was that big. Being a ship guy that you've got a port going on, you knew everything about that ship just by my horrible description, Sean. That's pretty darn cool. Um, so, well, I commend I commend CMA CGM. I know their their CEO, Mr. Sade. Uh, I know one of his major shareholders, Mr. Yildrum. They're a uh, they're the third largest shipping company in the world. Uh, number two is Maersk, and number one is Mediterranean Shipping Company. And, and this is essentially what society wants. Wow. You know, they want to see this. This is what you know their customers want to see. And and it's the same thing across many industries. And, and that's why having wow. uh, oil and gas provisioning in a safer, cleaner way is really going to, if we're going to achieve the atmospheric decarbonization goals that we want, uh, we're going to have to do it in a, in a safer, cleaner way, but we're also going to have to make sure that we're thoughtful about the infrastructure that's needed to be able to get there. Boy, the infrastructure, because, uh, you know, the the poor old Tesla uh, EV uh, debacle that's going on right now is, uh, I loved it when Secretary Graham uh, tried to do an EV trip for like three or four days and they had a staffer get arrested because they held, you know, they, they parked in there and had a pregnant lady uh, that they couldn't do it. EVs are not working because of the charging stations. I mean, and there's a lot of other things going on there, economics and everything else. How would we get the, the uh, if you would, the refueling stations for LNG? Would they be at every FS, uh, the floating import stations would also possibly be a filling station for these rascals? Uh, is that that seems to me would be a really easier way to just tap into those things. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, it's the same way when you look at uh, distributing heavy fuel oil. It, it's going to be right. the same distribution network, but you'll see a repurposing of the land and a repurposing of the tanks to be able to handle LNG wow. Uh and and to do it in a cleaner, safer way. You know, there's also talk about ammonia uh, and vessels being powered by ammonia. Um, I think that that as look, we all want we all want a cleaner, greener environment. No question right. about it. I, I have two 20 something year old uh, sons uh, who couldn't be more political polar opposites. Uh, but the one thing they agree on is the environment. Uh, and right. they both feel that there's a need to do more for the environment. But, you know, it's it is an evolution. It's not a revolution. And it's when people are revolutionary that sometimes we lose sight of the bigger picture of how important energy is. Wow. You know, when we talk about hydrocarbons, Stuart, you know, crude oil is used in less than half of less than half of crude oil that's consumed globally is used in the mobility space. Less than half. Less more than half. of it is less than half. More of it is consumed in the petrochemical space which is therefore then used for manufacturing. And 95% of the things that we use in our daily lives that have helped us evolve as a species, whether that's medicines or medical devices or technology, have hydrocarbons in them. Uh, yeah. But we have to do a better job of really evangelizing the importance of hydrocarbons and recognizing that it's the consumption of hydrocarbons that is really the challenge, the impacts of the consumption right. of hydrocarbons. It's not the hydrocarbon itself. Uh, it's the consumption of the hydrocarbon. And as mankind's appetite to consume continues to grow, 
We need to do more when it comes to reducing the impacts of consuming those hydrocarbons, because with the exception of nuclear, oil and gas has the highest density of energy of any commodity out there. I mean, much higher than obviously uh, renewables. Uh, And so with that that abundance of of dense energy that we have, let's focus our 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 efforts on reducing the impacts. And that's where carbon capture and sequestration, for example, comes into play. I'm a huge fan of that and uh, and look forward to and, and the energy industry is as well. And that's why you're seeing tens of billions of dollars being invested by oil and gas companies in carbon capture and sequestration initiatives. And I think that that is absolutely where they need to be, where they need to be putting their dollars in addition to more exploration and more production. Um, And I think the federal government needs to really not vilify them, but rather assist them in continuing to produce in a responsible, sustainable way while looking at reducing the impacts of the consumption. All right. You're an amazing man. And I don't mean to give you a man hug there or anything, but you were also (laughs) on the, uh, was it Texas Coalition for Carbon or uh, you were on, uh, was that, was it the Coalition for Carbon or? Uh, The Carbon Neutral Coalition. Carbon, thank you. I tried to reach out to you and and bug you there, but you were busy like digging ditches in the the channels and stuff. So, um, but that is very, very important on that. And like Occidental has done a great job, you know, taking that that effort in and doing both oil and gas and carbon capture and taking a look at going down the road for both of those. Sean, we only have a few more minutes here on the podcast, but you would be a phenomenal podcast host because of your wide range of background and knowledge. I think that you ought to be the next Dan Bongino of uh, energy. So uh I think uh, I'd love to come on your podcast if you ever uh, got your own show. So, well, I, look, you do such a great job, Stuart. I'll leave that to the experts. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I certainly appreciate uh, what you stand for for our industry. Uh, it is a great industry. It's one that uh, we cannot live without. Uh, it's an exciting time to be in the business. Uh, certainly, there's some disconcerting aspects when it comes to public policy and the rhetoric around uh, the, the the politicians these days in certain circles uh, with the oil and gas constituency. But when you have great leaders like uh, Mike Summers from API uh, yes. or Todd Staples from the Texas Oil and Gas Association, uh, and you have great corporate leaders like Darren Woods at, at Exxon or Vicki Holub at, uh, at, uh-huh. at Oxy, who have been very declarative uh, about the importance of their industries while continuing to do more to reduce atmospheric carbon concentrations. It's those types of leaders that uh, that truly inspire me. And I'm a big fan of your podcast. So I'm just going to continue to be a uh, uh, be part of your audience. And uh, I'm grateful that you invite me on from time to time. Oh, well, thank you, Sean. And I cannot wait to see you again. Uh, I'd love to have you as a regular victim on here. So uh, again, (laughs) thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you next time on the Energy News Beat podcast. Thank you.